Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Welcome back to the No One Fights Alone podcast, where we honor the men and women of our nation's first responder community by having difficult conversations about the challenges that they face. Another great guest today. This, this guy's amazing. Had the pleasure of meeting him only a couple of weeks ago, um, but had the, the privilege to, to hear a little bit about his story. I cried like a baby. That's right. <laughs> yeah. you, you, and, you, and, uh, you and Danny and, and your significant others were at the gala. Crying our eyes out. Yeah, that I got the text that said, uh, your friend's up there talking and he's making me cry like a baby. It was amazing to see. So. Such a great guy. Absolutely. Well, I don't think we should waste any time uh, us talking about him. I, I, I think we should bring him on because he's, uh, he's informative and I'm excited to have him on. And this is, uh, this is a friend of mine of a long time. We've been knowing each other for uh, many years. Uh, Sergeant Max Morgan with the uh, Utah County Sheriff's Office, uh, married to wife Becky, has a whole basketball team full of kids and grandkids and uh, a national board member for concerns of police survivors and a survivor himself of a co-worker line of duty death. Max Morgan, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So honored to have you on, man. You uh, tell us, uh, tell us just a little bit about uh, maybe your bio, like give us like the resume version of who you are, what you've done in your career and, and give us a little bit of a, give us a little bit of a picture of that. Uh, I've worked with the Utah County Sheriff's Office for 15 years. Um, my brother worked at the Sheriff's Office um, from 1985 to 2005. I used to do ride-alongs with him, I mean, weekly. I was always in the, in the truck with him, so I always wanted to work at the Sheriff's Office. So anyway, started back in 2008. I started my career off in corrections, worked in the jail for just under four years, tested for patrol, came out to patrol, done a bunch of different things on patrol. I started as an animal control officer, then went to our, our regular county patrol teams, then I went to our contract cities, uh, then I was over a couple of our small contract cities down south, and then went into investigations for the last four years, and then just promoted about six months ago to sergeant. Now I'm back on patrol, back out in Eagle Mountain, where my our line of duty death was. And happy peaceful uh talking to you and catching up with you a little bit you're really enjoying that current assignment but uh you know the 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 painful reality of why you were sitting here and why we became friends is that uh we had a very tragic tragic event happen in your life you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah so it's been i mean it's been kind of crazy because since then i've met tons of people and and i mean my life has changed completely on one hand, I wish that I never knew half these people. And then on the other hand, it's like, now I don't ever want to be away from these people. That's the that's something uh, that's been told in cops for right? a long it's, time. It's a, it's a community you don't want to be a part of, but once you're in it, you, you, it's, it profoundly changes your life, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, back on January 30th of 2014, um, it was cold winter day. I mean, snowing, foggy, you know, visibility was horrible. I mean, I can remember the the weather perfectly but yeah i had a uh, my sergeant cory ride pulled behind a car that had their flashers on off the side of the road pulled behind him to see if they needed some help anyway during that interaction the passenger in the vehicle opened the rear as, as cory was back into his truck looking on his computer 
the passenger in the truck opened up the rear window and shot him, shot him through the windshield. So there's three, three shots through the windshield and four rounds in the hood of the truck as they drove off. My, my response was Corey wasn't answering his radio. So they asked me to go out and check on him. We kind of knew where I knew where he was anyway, just because of the radio traffic and things. Actually, we, we were going to lunch. He decided he didn't want to go to lunch with us. Um, anyway. And so they asked me to go find him and check on him. And so I knew exactly where he was and pulled up behind his vehicle. And that's when I went up to the car and I found him that he'd been murdered. Kind of a, kind of a crazy, you know, there's, there's lots of things that happen in, in the span of seconds. Lots of, lots of thoughts that I had going out to where Corey was at. We had a coworker January 16th who ended up killing his mother-in-law, his wife, his two kids, and then himself. So it was, uh, it really, really made me question a lot of things. It really made me, I mean, it was, this wasn't like my best friend, but it was a guy I knew pretty well. Um, and I, I considered him a friend. I just questioned, started questioning so many things. I started questioning everything because I didn't, I didn't have any clue this guy was capable of this. My job that night was to be there and sit with the officer who initially went in and found him and his family. So really kind of made, you know, I, I was really uncertain in a lot of things. Um, my marriage wasn't great. Five days before Corey was shot, I moved out of my house. Um, my wife and I decided that was the best move for us was for me to move out and just so compounding things on, you know, I mean, in, in law enforcement, you know, we have our, our things that happen at work, but you know, it's the, the accumulative traumas that, that get us down, you know, I mean, everything else. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I moved out of my house on January 26th, I just felt like a complete, you know, a complete loser. I just felt like I, you know, I couldn't make it work. My kids were disappointed in me. My wife was disappointed in me. I was disappointed in myself. And then, you know, four days later is when Corey was shot. So I did, I, have, I had a lot of thoughts as I drove out to, to where he was at. I didn't know if he'd done something to himself. Taken a lot of heat for that over the years. Nothing that Corey had said or done that made me think that. But I think it was just, I mean, we, we hear about those stories across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's taken me a while, but I think that one of, the, one of the main reasons is because my life sucked at the time. And I'd had some of the same thoughts and, you know, and so I was just like, man, I hope he didn't do something to himself. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was only a matter of, of less than a minute, approached the driver's door, saw that he'd been, that he was dead. Uh, I ran around to the passenger side of the car, um, to look in and still I can explain the whole interior of that vehicle. It, it, uh, you know, he had his lunch sitting on the passenger seat that his wife had made him. He loved to go to Swig to places you get, you know, the the drinks with mixed with all that other stuff, and and uh, he loved a Mountain Dew drink that he'd get there. He had a, a white styrofoam cup with a purple straw in the in there, you know. So I, I mean, I could excri- describe everything. But then as I went back to the front of the vehicle and turned and faced the vehicle, um, that's when I noticed the three rounds through the windshield and the four rounds in the hood, and immediately was just like, "Holy crap, Corey's been murdered." And it, it was freezing cold that day and you just went numb. It was just, you know, you almost didn't feel anything. And for a few seconds, I became really, really scared. The car was gone, obviously, that he had pulled up behind. Um, and my thoughts were it was an ambush. And I thought, holy crap, they, they got Corey lured in. 
they're just waiting for more people. And this is, this is where it ends. This is where, this is where I'm going to die right here. And all I could see in my mind was a pair of crosshairs, you know, from like a hunting scope on the back of my head. And I thought before I even get a chance to turn around, I'm going to get, I'm going to get dropped right Mm -hmm. here. And it scared me. It scared me. I, you know, my thoughts of my kids and my wife, and this was the last thing they'd know of me. Mm -hmm. And four days before moving out of the house, you know, and just felt, just felt worthless. Um, obviously it wasn't an ambush and, and, you know, then we had to take, take steps forward as to what happened and trying to figure out, you know, okay, where's this car at? What's going on? And now, I mean, you've got law enforcement coming from everywhere. I mean, you've got, we got the vehicle put out, the the ATL on the vehicle, um, south of our location out there in Eagle Mountain. One of my other guys, Greg Sherwood, was able to find the vehicle, got up behind it, and this guy opened the back window and shot Greg through the windshield and hit him in the head. We had to sit and listen to the horror on the radio as we're trying to take care of our scene to then figure out, you know, just listen to this and be helpless. You know, we, I, I couldn't help Greg. I couldn't help anybody down there. And, you know, and so then he was able to get away. And then about 20 minutes later, down the road, half hour later is when he was, he was caught and, and he was shot. So just all kinds of, I just hated life after that, you know? I mean, the, the accumulative of my marriage and family, Corey's shooting, the other coworkers stuff, you know? And I dealt with it in bad ways. You know, I didn't sleep. Um, I couldn't sleep. I would, I'd go home and I, I didn't have nightmares, but I just I couldn't turn my brain off at all. And it would just go and go and go. And I'd try and do different things. I'd try to go to the gym at night to make myself physically tired. And I still would just stay up. I mean, I would, I would stay awake till I was just so exhausted. I'd finally fall asleep and I'd maybe sleep for a half hour, maybe an hour. And then I'd have images pop in my head and, and I'm wide awake again. So I didn't get any sleep. I drank too much and didn't know how to cope with things. And then that's, you know, a few months later is when I got introduced to the cops organization. So obviously heartbreaking story. These are, these are, this is the community you now work and serve in, but, uh, do you remember anything about the funeral? Was that a blur? Was that, you know, oftentimes people say that it was. So I remember, I remember a lot of the stuff about the funeral. I don't remember a couple days leading up to it. Everything was kind of a blur. I do remember the funeral just because of the sheer amount of people that were there. And so, and, and it was, I knew I had known Corey. Um, so anyway, Corey's, I, I didn't, Corey's oldest boy is married to my niece. Okay. And so, I mean, I knew Corey through more than just work. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I knew a lot of the people there, you know, I knew obviously my whole department and everybody, it just seemed real personal, not just a, you know, not just another big funeral, just seemed really personal. Really rough. Yeah. yeah. And so me, and there was, you know, six others of us that were on Corey's team that were the pallbearers. So, I mean, we were, you know, we were involved, you know, right up front there. And, and I mean, it was, it was amazing, but it just sucked. You had to be there. Had you had, uh, had you been impacted by a line of duty death at that point in your career? Had you had been around anything? Is this? No, this is the first line of duty death that the Utah County Sheriff's Office has mm-hmm. had. Um, I knew of a few others. I knew of Derek Johnson um, that was killed in Draper uh, September 30th of 2013, so just a few months prior to, to Corey's. 
I remember watching that on TV. I remembered mm-hmm. watching Jared Frankham's funeral on TV. And so I, I remember watching those, but this is the first one I'd ever been involved with. So at, at this point, you've had your entire world rocked by having a dear friend killed in the line of duty. Uh, your personal life's going to shit. Now your work life, arguably, is going to shit. Uh, as well as probably many others on your department. That's just what happens with departments when they're rocked by a, a, a line of duty death. Um, but I want to fast forward here. I, mean, I know we can spend a lot of time on that portion of the story, um, but I I want to really spend some time on what drives your passion and what makes Max Morgan passionate about helping others. So leading us up to that point, uh, where did you go? You 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 ended up, getting connected with uh, this community through this line of duty death. Yeah. So I was contacted. There's, there's a guy in our department, um, Zach Adams, who would ride the police unity tour. Didn't know what that was at the time, but through, through that unity tour, um, there was a guy named Michael Stolzman from California. Um, I got a phone call from Michael probably in August of that year and just said, Hey, I know you don't know me. You don't, you know, but the slowest, talking human Ever. on the planet. Yes. It's almost frustrating. You <laughs> it just is, want to punch him. You, in, but, right in the throat. But you, well. Love that and guy. And you'd have to bend down to hit him yeah, in the throat. I know, yeah. He's, love that guy. But Yeah, so do I. So he called and he said, hey, I want you to go to this cop's co-workers retreat with me. And I said, okay, what, what, what is that? And he says, you know, well, we go out there and there's, there's cops from all over the country that, that come to this thing that all have been experienced a line of duty death. I said, well, what do you do there? And he's like, well, we have a debriefing. And I said, nope, I'm not going. Um, I had a debriefing at the sheriff's office that I absolutely hated. I thought it was horribly done and not a knock on the sheriff's office. We've never done this before. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. And, and I, that's a good thing, right? That we're not well-versed in, <laughs> sure. in how to do these. Um, but I just hated it. I, m- I remember I was the last person to go and as, and I was a mess. This was just, and, and I can't, I really can't remember if it was a couple of days before the funeral or a couple of days after, but I was, I was just a mess. Um, and I walked out of that debriefing and I was like, I'll never do one of these again. They don't, no one gets it. No one understands what I went through. No one understands what I saw, you know, what I'm going through. And I'm like, never again. So, so paint so, that picture. Was there like a, a therapist in the middle of a, you so know? There, yeah, it was a great, it was a huge big circle. So, I mean, we had three different scenes. We had the scene in Eagle Mountain, the scene where Greg was shot in, in Santa Quinn, and then the scene where suspect was shot down in, in Juab County. And so, I mean, there was probably 60, 70 people in this debriefing. Everybody from all three scenes were there. There's a therapist right here, and this, he went around the circle, and I'm sitting to the other side of the therapist, so I was very last to go after 70 people. And I'm Jeez. like, fuck oh, this. I hate yeah. that. That, Well, that's exactly what I said when I walked out. I'm like, fuck that. I will never do one of these again, ever. As it got to my turn, I start talking, and I look around, and there's people looking on their phone, talking to the person oh, yeah. next to them. And Completely I'm like, disconnected. And I'm like, uh-uh. They don't no, give a no, shit what again. I say. They don't, they don't, yeah. yeah. And so... I was, I was real hesitant to go to this, this coworkers retreat. And he said, Hey, it's a free trip. Just to be clear when he's, when, when you said cops, this is in reference to concerns of police survivors, correct? not just the cops. Yeah. So current concerns of police survivors is an organization that was started in 1984 that deals with, um, families and coworkers of people that have experienced a line of duty death. Amazing organization. 
So I decided, okay. And like I've said before, my, my life sucked. And I was just like, you know, I'm sitting here at my brother's house in this little bedroom where I lived at the time. And I can either stay here and still contemplate whether pulling the trigger is the best idea, or maybe I'll give this a shot. And I thought, well, my kids deserve me to at least try. Of course. So I said, okay, we'll go. Uh, me and a couple guys from my department went that were on my team. I remember going, you, you fly into St. Louis, you get on this bus, and you go to this backwards town of Potosi, Missouri. <laughs> Never and, heard of it. And uh, it's... <laughs> it is not easy to get to either. <laughs> it's a different town. And then you kind of go just on the outskirts of town out by this lake, and the lake is gorgeous. Um, really a place that over the years, I've that's a very peaceful mm-hmm. scene for me is to to walk out the the room and look at the lake on the balcony. It's just, mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. Anyway, so I went and got off the bus and there was these two ladies there laughing and joking and talking and giving me a great big hug and said, I'm glad you're here. Her name's, you know, Lori Putnam and Aaron Barnett, two ladies that I've grown to absolutely love. Um, and I'm like looking around and I'm going, why are people laughing? Why are people joking and having fun? I'm like, I don't want to be here, you know? If I could have got back on that bus and gone back to the airport and gone home, I would have. And so anyway, they do a little activity that night to kind of get there and know everybody. So then Saturday morning is the debrief time. Well, before you go, they, you have to fill out some paperwork and stuff. So they understand if your officer was killed from like a felonious incident, a medical incident, uh, you know, a traffic accident incident. And they kind of group the people in likeness for, from their, from their officer's death. So how many, how many people are at this retreat at one time? So you have average between 80 to 100. Okay, so it's a pretty good size mm-hmm. group. Yeah, it's one of the largest um, hands-on programs that COPS does. So we go into the debriefing, sit in a room in a circle again, and I'm just sweating bullets. I'm like, I hate this. I hate this. Is, you know, just bringing back the memory of the other one, right? right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I, I, you didn't really go in a circle, but everybody had their chance to talk, you know. I wasn't first. I don't even remember where I was at, but, but I remember it was hard for me to tell my story. I mean, I cried and cried and cried to get through it. And that's one thing I've learned is the more you tell your story the more you talk about it, the easier it is. And it's actually the easier it is to deal with it. But, uh, we were nicknamed the train wreck group because we were an absolute fucking mess. All of us. After I told my story, I know there was a girl sitting next to me from Wisconsin and she told her story and I was looking at her just going, Holy crap. Like, it's almost the same. It's, it's not exactly the same, but it's really, really similar. I mean, one of her very best friends, it was his first day off FTO, and he was shot and killed in front of her, and she held him as, as he died in her arms. But uh, all of a sudden, as everybody around the circle started telling their stories, I'm like, holy crap, this dude gets it. This guy understands. Yeah. This guy's been through what I went through. You know, back home, nobody has, you know. I had one dude at my department walk up to me and put his arm around me and say, dude, I know exactly what you're going through. No, you don't. And I, and, and I just wanted to look at him and punch him. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. really? What, which one of your coworkers did you find murdered, you know, in their patrol car? But the people out here. Well-intentioned. I, I, Those are all I, I well-intentioned, so. right? I, absolutely. But, but I know the feeling. Get, don't touch me. You know, you, uh, and, and people want to say something that they think is going to mean something and be yeah. impactful. And they just sound stupid. Yeah. And I get it. I mean, I understand. And, you know, I mean, I think I'm sorry is kind of the best thing you can say in times like that. You know? No um, words are adequate. Right. And so 
But back there in, in at the coworkers retreat, all of a sudden, as these people are telling their stories, and I'm like, holy crap, they get it. They're, these guys aren't judging me. These guys aren't, you know, they're going through their own hell. And you instantly gain these friendships and bonds with these people. Um, and it's people that you talk to throughout the year. I mean, it's, you know, we do all kinds of things. You know, I've, Michael Stolzman comes out here to my daughter's weddings. I mean, you know what I mean? I go, we, we go all over the place. And these become your, these become your people. Yeah. Right? It's the, like forming a little bit of a family. Yeah. The yeah. people you never wanted to know, now, again, you don't ever want them out of your life. So after the retreat was over, and they, I mean, it's like a, I, I like it to a Boy Scout camp, right? I mean, there's horseback riding. You can go archery shooting. You can do arts and crafts. You can it, do, it literally I mean, is a youth camp. It, 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 it is. is. It, yeah. And, and we, di- we dig it. We, we, I mean, it, it's a blast, you know? And well, does it take about a day for people to maybe open up a little bit to that thought process? Because I'm sure they're like, horseback riding, fuck that. Or, you know, arts and crafts, okay. you'll never see me there. So here, here's the funny thing about arts and crafts is the first year we went, Michael Stolzman had a really bad back. And so we really couldn't do, he couldn't do anything else. So we're like, let's go to arts and crafts. And so we went and they have these mugs that was like a skull. So we painted skull mugs. Well, I now have nine skull mugs at my house because arts and crafts has become so popular that when we get there to the coworkers retreat, we're told by the, the, the cop staff, you can't sign up for arts and crafts until other people have a chance to do it. And so, because it's become the, what everybody wants to do. And it's like, you got all this 90 cops in this room yeah. and everybody wants to go do arts and crafts. It is singularly <laughs> the most popular. I love There's that. a lot of great and, activities. I love it that. Is, yeah. it, is, it is a sight it's, to see a bunch of cops in a room painting ugly ugly mugs oh yeah. zero artistic ability oh, zero. Guys, yeah that's yeah, the best part about there, it there's a couple of them that had some okay ability i i didn't yeah. you know it's just like slop some paint on there i don't know try and do something but but uh it's become what we do so after you know after the retreat go home and i started to do i, I felt pretty good you know i was thinking hey that changed you know i i totally see things in a completely different light i totally see things different than i did before and I was, I had, I guess, more of a reason for living now, right? I, I wasn't the only one that was going through something like this. I wasn't the only one that life sucked at the time, you know? And, and it's funny because I've always said, you know, you don't have to look very far to find somebody that's got it worse off than you do. And that's, there's, there's guys back there at the retreats that, holy shit, I think mine's bad. They're, you know, their, their instance, you know, their, their story's way worse than mine. So I got a, I got a personal question, I guess, to ask out of this. Okay. Had the department made you do, or had you done on your own, any type of therapy or anything prior to this? Mm-mm. So this was your first experience to releasing some of those yeah. memories and thoughts and things like that. Yeah, and and I like it. It's not a knock on the department. Like I said, we they had no clue what what to do, you know. And and I think they tried to do the best. I mean, you'd have people, hey, how's it going? You doing okay? And everybody plays that game. Yeah, I'm good. I'm fine. You know. Yeah. I mean. We're supposed to be big, bad, and tough, you know, and nothing affects us and, you know, suck it up and move on. And our department is way past that. Our, the sheriff's office now does is phenomenal in helping guys, helping them get taken care of. But back then we just didn't, you know, it just wasn't something you did. And, and I think we still had the persona of, well, I can't say that something's wrong or, I'm going to have to go do a fit for duty status and I'm yeah. going to get pulled off my, you know, Punishment. pulled out of work and different things, you know, for, for something that this job did to me. 
you know. So, but no, I hadn't been to any other kind of counseling at all. And back there at the retreats, they have um, professional counselors that are amazing. Um, you know, we do, there's EMDR that goes on. There's lots of one-on-one sessions if you want. Plus they have group sessions. I mean, so other than the debriefing, you know, the other days there's classes that they help you take. I mean, you know, different things from survivor guilt to, you know, how do I deal with my family? How do I, you know, just, I, I know there's probably 15, 20 different classes, you know, that you can take that help you navigate through where you're at. And how long is it? It's, it's just the weekend. So you fly in on Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and then you fly out Monday. I mean, but two, three days mm-hmm. of, of that when you'd never been exposed to something along those lines had to be life-changing. It, that's exactly, it was absolutely life-changing. I walked off the, the plane back here in Salt Lake and I was like, holy cow, like that's the best thing I've ever done. I mean, and it completely, I did a complete 180 and it was, it was amazing. I, I couldn't believe when I talk to people about going to these retreats, that's why I tell them, I'm like, just give it a try. Give it a try, and I think it'll be life-changing for you. It's just something about going back there and being around other people that understand you and been through the same stuff, it breaks down a lot of walls. I've watched a lot of really big, bad, tough people break down and cry and, and just be able to start dealing with their stuff. I really think that's a lot of the magic sauce in those retreats is that you're sitting next to people who really do understand and have walked. They see you. For who you are, uh, not because they chose that path themselves, but they ended up in that room the same way you did and I did, and that those people are there because they've lost somebody near or dear in some form or fashion. But those, so that that by itself gives it this the the freedom to to just be who you are. And did you experience that? Where where you mm-hmm. say, okay, these are. These are, I mean, you said it, these are my people now. So you, and that's okay to, I'm mad today. You know, I'm, I'm, and that person over there says, oh yeah, I, I see you. Mm-hmm. I see, have I see you, what's going on. Have you done one of these? Yeah. Retreats? That's where we met. That's, okay. where, that's where Brad and I met. That's he didn't even met. tell me that. No, <laughs> that's where we met. Um, we met at a coworker's retreat. I think, mm-hmm. I think that was maybe your second or third time. Second, I think. Yeah. To, to go to, to a coworker's retreat and. That was my first one. Uh, we were starting to teach a little bit, and I needed to go through a coach. It was not as fresh for me. I mean, I'd kind of worked through a lot of that and done some therapeutic services, but the but the retreat itself was absolutely amazing. So, circling back to to okay, let's we're getting off the plane. I like where you're going with that. So life's a life's a hot mess. The department, uh, you know, is in disarray, but Max is getting off the plane. Different. Walk us through a little bit of what life looks like with that. So like I said, I'd had, you know, dealt with things horribly the wrong way. You know, I grew up with a, with a dad that was a family and marriage counselor that every time something happened, he says, Oh, let's talk about that. And I was like, (laughs) and you know, I couldn't have a girlfriend break up with me with my dad wanting to not sit me down in the office and, and talk, you know? So to go back there and talk really wasn't, wasn't a hard thing for me. You know, it wasn't hard to break those walls down and it was really pretty easy for me. But the, the crazy change was when I did walk off the plane was I just felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off of me. And, and anymore, I st- that's where I really started to not worry about what other people in the department thought of me. And, and there, was, there was not a lot, but a few, right? I mean, they had really had a hard time mm-hmm. 
understanding why I thought Corey might have done something. And like I said, it's nothing Corey said or did. Um, it was just my own things, you know, my own thoughts and my own situation. But I, I got off that plane and I was like, life's pretty good. I mean, it's not, it's not great. I mean, I'm still living in a shitty little one bedroom home at my brother's house, you know, not with my wife and my kids. I mean, it wasn't great, but I was like, we can work with this, you know, and, and I, I felt pretty good. And so things started to go, to go better. I really started to, to understand and deal with a lot of my own stuff internally. And I talked to some of the counselors that I'd, that I'd met back there at the coworkers retreat. I mean, you can call and talk to them whenever you want. And I'd call a, a gal from Texas and, and talk to her quite a bit. And so I was just excited, I think. I was excited because I felt like I had kind of a, a renewed sense now, you know, that I can get through this. I can do this. I can do this, mm-hmm. right? And that's how things went for a few months. And then come February, um, February 15th, I had one, my oldest, not my, my brother just older than me. He was four years older than me. But my brother Matt and I were best friends, and he and I did so much together. We played baseball together for twenty some odd years. We, you know, we went to football games together. We did so much together. And he'd just gotten divorced, and he committed suicide on February fifteenth, and that one crushed me. It, uh, I, I felt like I just went completely backwards, and I'd had such a hard time with his with his suicide. And I, I tried not to be mad at him. I tried not to, to be to be pissed, but it sucked that me and a couple of my brothers had to go to his house and tell his five kids that he was gone. Um, I remember calling his wife, and and uh, they weren't home. They were anyway visiting a family or something. And and I just told his wife, his now ex wife, I said, I need you to come home. And she's like, Why? And I said, I just need you to come home. And she just started crying. She's like, He did it, didn't he? And I said, yeah. And telling his kids, gosh, that sucked. <laughs> that was, that was horrible. And but then I, man, I just kind of went backwards. I went backwards. I was like, holy crap. But I'll tell you what, most of the people that reached out and called me were the guys I'd met from the coworkers mm-hmm. retreat. And I was like, these are my people, <laughs> yep. you know, gives and me chills, man. So yeah, it, it, uh, dealt with that, you know, dealing with that. And, and I was, I was just like so mad and I've, and I've been mad at him for years. I mean, still, I'm not perfect, right? I'm not in a perfect sure. place, but I mean, I've still never gone to the cemetery. I've never seen his headstone. So, so Matt sat in front of my grandma and grandpa's headstone when he killed himself. And now he's buried like 10 feet to the South of that, just right in the same row, everything. And I just, I've had a hard time. I don't want to go back. My kids go back. It was, it was crazy how much that affected my kids. Because when my brother was separated from his wife, he spent a lot of time with my kids. And so my kids and his, his kids were really good friends, you know. And so we spent a lot of time together. And when that happened, boy, that affected my kids more than I ever thought it would. So I kind of realized several years later, not until a couple of years ago, why I've been so mad at him. And I was like... And it was through talking with one of my counselors and it was like, I felt the same way. I had the same thoughts. I had the same feelings, you know, but I dealt with my shit mm-hmm. and I've been so mad. I'm like, why, why can't you deal with your, why couldn't you have dealt with your shit? Why'd you have to go and do that? You know, why'd you have to, and he was drunk at the time. I really wonder if he was sober, if he'd have made a, I think he'd have made a different decision. Sure. Um, but he, <laughs> he had a, a history of bad decisions when he was drunk. <laughs> yeah. So, like most um, of us. Yeah. 
But, and then a few months after that, my daughter was in a car wreck. And my boys, me and my two boys were getting a drink one Sunday morning and we saw these sheriffs come flying by us and, you know, pulled over. They're coming through with lights and sirens. And I remember thinking, man, that's weird. Because the first guy that went through this intersection right by where we were at, he was my FTO. And he's the one that trained me and he says, intersections will kill you. You have to slow down in an intersection. You have to, mm-hmm. anyway, he blew that intersection at 96 miles an hour as fast as that Tahoe would go. And I remember looking like, holy crap, what is, he's going to something crazy, you know? And then another guy right behind him. And anyway, um, I got back home and, and uh, told my wife, I says, I says, yeah, it looks like there's a bunch of sheriffs heading up towards Hobble Creek Canyon. So I got on my phone and looked at the, the CAD there on our phone. And I said, oh, yeah, it looks like there's a wreck up, up right-hand fork of Hobble Creek Canyon. She goes, oh, that's crazy. And I says, yeah, it looks like it's a white Subaru Outback rolled off a cliff. And my wife reeked out, screaming. And I'm like, what, what, what's going on? What, what's the matter? She goes, that's Kenzie. Go get her. Go get her. You got to go get her. That's Kenzie. And I'm like, what do you mean that's Kenzie? She was supposed to be sleeping at a friend's house. But she lied to us and said she was sleeping at a friend's house. And she went with another friend camping up the canyon. Anyway, so I remember I'm like, well, let me go, let me go grab my work phone. Let me see what I can find out. And I went to pick up my work phone. I had two missed calls from one of the sergeants. It's like, ah, crap. So I picked up the phone, just hit the, the redial button, whatever, to call him back. And he picked up the phone, didn't say hello, didn't say anything. He said, Max, do you know what's going on? And I just said, is it McKenzie? And he said, yeah. And I started crying and all kinds of things. And I'm like, what's the matter? What happened? You know, is she okay? What's going on? He's like, get on your radio and talk to Spencer Cannon. So I got, turned my radio on and Spencer just said, it's bad. Go to the hospital. Don't come up here. It's, it's bad. So anyway, um, she was ejected out of the car and then the car landed on top of her as they rolled off the cliff. And so it broke everything from her neck down. Crazy enough that she had no brain injury, um, no TBI, no anything, which is nuts because I don't think you can fall off a four wheeler without some kind of a brain injury. And 28 surgeries later, I mean, we lost her once. They took her, flew her to Provo, and they flew her from Provo to Salt Lake. They lost her and got her back. And then, yeah, she's had, I mean, her complete pelvis is metal. She had, um, she went through 50 units of blood in one day. The Red Cross actually came out from back east and did a full body transfusion on her because they had to put completely different blood into her because she was just going, she went through every bit of O negative in the state of Utah and just crazy. So the crazy thing was, was I moved back home the very first part of October of that year of 2015. So I'd been out of the house almost two years. We got Kenzie home. She couldn't walk. She couldn't, we, I mean, we had to lift her out of the bed, into the wheelchair, out of the wheelchair, onto the toilet. I mean, every, I mean, she had to be lifted every, she couldn't do anything. And I told my wife, I says, um, by the way, this weekend, I'm going back to the coworkers retreat. And she's like, what? Yeah, fuck you the are. Fu- the fuck yeah. you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, she was, and I'm like, she's like, please don't. And she goes, I need, I need your help. And I said, I don't know that you really understand, which I, I get, but I says, I have to go. I have to go. And I went. Same thing with the debriefing. It was hard getting through. Had the same train wreck group. But the, the crazy thing is, is like those first couple of times I'd get off and especially the first time I got off the bus and, and it was, everybody's coming in, you know, and they're laughing and talking. 
well, that's, that's me now. So I'm the guy that's laughing and talking, you know, Brad and I are joking it up and having a good time. I mean, there's a whole group of us now that usually come in a day or two early. We go play around in St. Louis. We go to a baseball game. We go hang out and have a blast, right? So my, my feeling is there's a lot of people that helped me year one and two, my worst two years. Year three, I was better. I mean, I wasn't great, but I mean, I was getting better. This year, this October, will be my 10th co-workers retreat. Now I keep going. I, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. Um, I feel like life's pretty good. Not perfect, but things are going okay. And all that can, you know, you can get a, a curveball thrown at you anytime. But my, my intent on going back to these retreats every year is I want to be there for those people that it's their first and second year that are struggling. I want to be there to meet them as they get off the bus. I want to be there too when they get up and walk out of the, you know, the debriefing because they're having such a hard time that I can go out and sit with them and be the guy to help them out and to, because I got that. And for me, it was absolutely life-changing. You know, people have asked all the time, what, you know, what's cops done for me? And I says, not only has it changed my life, it's absolutely saved my life. And now I want to be there for the other people that are just coming in. I mean, it sucks. Our membership grows every year. You know, I mean, it's the only, it's the only monument in Washington, D.C. that continues to grow. So, so let's, let's spend a little time there. But before we do, uh, I'm going to circle back to something you said about, so Becky says, no, don't go. Then when you got back, what kind of conversations happened there? Just So she didn't know that, a whole lot of what went on because I, I didn't talk a whole lot, right? Well, you weren't leaving at home. And, and right. I just, I, well, she, the second time I'd just barely come back home. Okay. I'd, I'd been okay. back home maybe three, four days. Okay. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, at the time. And so after my brother committed suicide, we were kind of, like, what do we want to do? Do we want, we want to just quit, be done? Do we want to work on things, you know? And, and so we decided we wanted to work on things. It was really, really slow, um, but we just decided we didn't want to quit. So I didn't talk to her a whole lot. Like I said, she's, she's not heard the story until, until the gala a couple of weeks ago. But she, she, she could tell, I mean, you talk to her now, and she's like, I could totally see a change. I could totally see a change in, she could see a change in me. I acted different. I was different with her. I was different with the kids. I was just a different person. And, and I mean, she's, she's said many times how grateful she is for, for the cops organization because it, it saved me. And now she's alongside you with this. Yeah. So, sorry, I just wanted to circle us back here. So, so, um, kind of close that out a little bit because there is a great, you know, rest of the story to that. So concerns of police survivors. You were an integral part of uh, Concerns of Police Survivors now uh, nationally. Give us a little bit of a, what do they do? Who are they? Uh, why do they exist? What, what makes them tick? What do they offer? Why are they around? So back in 1984, there was a gal named Susie Sawyer who was involved with the FOP. And she loved the FOP, loved what they did, but she saw a need for stuff for survivors, for families. And at the time... It was, you know, parents and, and children and things and spouses. And, and she wanted to do something to help these people. And so with the FOP's blessing, she broke off and started Concerns of Police Survivors. Now, and here we are tons of years later. We have a chapter in every state, but I think two. So there's a, there's a local chapter. We have a Utah chapter of cops, and then we have our national organization. Um, so what we do... We respond when there's a line of duty death and help 
family. I mean, there, there's tons of things we can do. There's some departments that unfortunately are really good at taking the reins after a line of duty death. Mm-hmm. Um, and gratefully, there's a lot of departments that aren't. Um, so we can help them, you know, with funeral arrangements. We can help them with, you know, what to do here. Now, what do we, how do we take care of the family? How does a department work to take care of a family? We reach out to help take care of the family and the coworkers. You know, so there's two big parts of what Concerns of Police Survivors does. We have our police week every May where the families and coworkers go back and their names are put on the national wall there in Washington, D.C. There's a candlelight vigil back there that's probably the coolest candlelight vigil I think anybody could ever see in their life right there at the Washington Mall. It's chilling. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's my, it, that's my favorite part of the whole week. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, there's a, an event on the Capitol lawn on, the, on May 15th where... Officers' names are read, and the, the families walk up, pin a carnation on the wreath, and are able to be acknowledged, and, and their officers are honored there. Um, it's, a, it's a quick, long week, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, it's a very emotional week. Um, a lot of families and spouses will say that it's like a second funeral, but one that they remember, because, I mean, everything back there that week is about their officer. So that's one part that, that we do. The part that I like the best is our hands-on programs. Like I said, I talked a little bit about the coworkers one. We have 12 hands-on programs a year that we do. We have a kids camp from kids as age six to 15. We have a young adults from kids that are 16 to 20 and uh, an adult children for kids 21 to however old. Um, we have a parent's retreat. We have a spouse's retreat. We have um, a, we have one we started a few years ago. It's spouses and couples. So. When a spouse loses her officer in the line of duty, you know, a few years later, you know, they may end up getting married. Mm-hmm. And now you've got this new guy that comes in or girl that comes in and they don't know what they've gotten themselves into. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're walking into a situation where, sure. you know, they're, they're, now their spouse's officer, you know, or loved one was taken violently or, and it's hard to navigate those waters. Yeah. And so... We have one where they can bring mm-hmm. their spouses with them and they can meet with, talk with the counselors and they can together figure out how to go forward. With people who have done this right. before and, them. And that, that's, that, that's the coolest thing about the whole organization is, you know, kids camp. These kids get to go. I've been involved with a lot of the kids from, that have now started in kids camp and now they're in, you know, the adult children. I mean, they grow up with these people. But, you know, life's, life sucks when you're, you know, an eight-year-old kid and you lose your mom or dad. And it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand, you know, because most people around you have not lost their mom and dad like that, mm-hmm. you know. And now these kids get the same thing. They get to go, they get to be around other kids who are like, holy crap, my dad died too. Or, you know, and be able to talk to these kids and that's where they want to be. I right. mean, you know, the kids camp is a week-long thing. And once it's done and they leave, I mean, they, they always talk about this kind of letdown after you leave one of these, one of these hands-on programs. Because you're there with all this support, and then you're going to go home, and you're going to kind of have this dump. People will understand that, yeah, and how they feel. And yeah. so connection's to, huge. Yeah, go yeah. back to a messy life. Everybody's yeah. lives are messy, right? Yeah. And so it's so good. You're almost in this bubble here, you know. But the the nice thing is you're gaining the tools to to continue to to make life at home better. But you know, the kids get to go, and, and they look forward to coming to to kids camp every year. I mean, that's where they get to come see their friends. And, and again, it's where they, they get to hang out, get spouses that go and get to talk to other spouses, you know, about the same kinds of things. So it's such a cool organization and how it's, it's done 
to where this is your family. This is the people that get you. This is the people that understand. And that's where you want to be. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly what you want to do and where you want to be. So if we're, if, so if, uh, I want to circle us back to a little bit to the coworkers and, and obviously there's these retreats are for anybody, but, and predominantly our community is a first responder community. And, uh, so if a, if a coworker was out there and has had a loss, a survivor of a line of duty death of some type, what would you, what would you encourage them process, uh, of how to get to a coworker retreat? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I was. I think I was fortunate. So, I mean, Corey was killed in January and I went to my first coworkers retreat that, that October. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I went to my first coworkers retreat before he even, we even went to police week. So I got it fairly early on, but the cool thing about cops is for one, that's there's, I mean, there's no dues, there's no fees to pay, you know, I mean, the, the price they've paid is already high enough by losing one of their coworkers, by losing a family member. But the cool thing is, is, your your coworker could have died in 1979. Mm-hmm. Your coworker could have died in 1960. Whatever you know, doesn't matter. You're you're part of us, mm-hmm. and and you you're you can come. You can come hang out with us. You can come get all the benefits that we have, and and so you know. And, and a lot of people. Everything. The, the cool thing about the coworkers retreat is everything's confidential. We have a, a Facebook page. It's a completely private page. Pictures aren't posted. You know, on on regular Facebook pages. Some people will actually use vacation time to come to coworkers because they don't want their department to know. They're afraid that maybe they're going to get in trouble. You know, oh, hey, you got to go get some help. Everything's confidential. Um, everything's kept there. So if, there, if there's people, and I know there is, I mean, there's a lot of people that struggle. There's a lot of people that struggle with, with the line of duty death that they've had. And maybe it's been from this year. Maybe it's been from 10 or 20 years mm-hmm. ago. If, if there's an interest and if somebody even is, is kind of on the bubble, I'd love to talk to them and I think I can get them to go, but I can, I, the two things I can promise it's life changing. It'll absolutely change your life and you'll never, you'll never regret it. And there's some people that go and continue to go every year. There's other people that go for a couple of years and they do pretty good. They gain some tools and, and get to, to figure out how to move on with life and, and deal with things and, and they're good with it, you know, but so with the Utah chapter of Concerns of Police Survivors, um, we for your plane ticket to get there. Um, once you're there, National takes care of everything, the lodging, the food, everything. So it's a free trip, right? And so I, I try and sell it to people that give us a chance. It's a free trip. I'm going to pay for your way to get there and come hang out with us and give it a shot. I know you said it, it, it will change your life, and, and clearly it's, a, it's monumentally impactful to those who've had an Little to no resources, but I want to reinforce the the comment you made earlier about these now become your lifelong friends. Uh, I mean, you and I—that's where we met. You and I've—I I love you, bro. I mean, this is that's that's how we connected, and these are the friendships that you have all across the country with people who who really get you. So I think, in addition to you know just the impact of changing your life, you're networked all across the United States now with people who who really see you who really understand you, who really get you. So Utah, okay, so Utah, I want to I make sure we have time to talk about um, a little bit about uh, Utah Chapter of Cops because we just recently had a fundraising event uh, here in Utah. Uh, I, I want us to talk a little bit about that. So you, you pay for a lot of things that happen for survivors that 
uh, occur in Utah with line of duty death and, and travel and things. And one of the mechanisms by which you raise money to do that is having a gala, uh, an annual gala. And we just had this. And Austin, I know you and Danny and you all went. I want us to, I want us to talk a little bit about that. First off, you know, you, you can't say enough good things about that event in itself. The the amount of people that showed up, the brother sisterhood that you could feel in the room. I mean, everything from the the auction uh, to the food to the speakers to the comedians to you know everything about that gala says what cops is about to me. Right? What what the ultimate mission was there was to help, you know, people get to these coworkers events or help they need and, you know, as as an outsider looking in into those, you couldn't ask for something better. It, it's amazing. It's beautiful the the vibe you get. I mean, just the people that you you meet, you know, the everyone. It just can't speak enough good things about so, it. So Max the Gala. Tell us a little bit about your perspective of the Gala. How did it go? Did was it a success? Absolutely. I think, I think it went great. Um, it was, I think it was a a huge success. You know, the gala is, it's a black tie event. Um, you know, your wife gets to go buy a dress and you dress up in a tux or a, or a nice suit and have a nice evening out. Um, you know, we try and provide a lot of good silent auction items and some speakers and, you know, just, just have a a fun night. And, and the night is about re- honoring the people that have gone before us that have, that have been killed in line of duty deaths and remembering the people that still do the job every day because both are, are equally important. One of the, to me, one of the most impactful parts of the night is when we, we recognize different people. We have our surviving spouses stand up and yeah. be recognized. We have surviving parents, surviving, you know, siblings and, and stuff. And to me, that's really cool. I mean, you're in a room of almost 500 people. 470 people and, and and you know it's pretty pretty quiet as these people stand up you sure. know that's emotional right there. It's, yeah, a, you, it's a very emotional sure. part of the evening sure. so yeah you could you could feel the emotion in there and that was that was something that started i mean i cried multiple times through the night and i like to say i'm big bad and tough but i'm not when that kind of stuff happens right like you know the survivor spouses the kids the parents they hold a special place in our heart in this community you know they've lost their loved one and they're there, you know, it's no, I'm, I'm not significantly saying it's different for us than veterans or the, uh, the fire. Uh, I just know personally, uh, you know, in, in my walk and what I've seen is that they, they hold a special, special place uh, now in our hearts uh, for having given their law, their loved one to uh, their death. And to be able to honor them in that moment, you know, is really special. Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's one probably one of my most favorite parts of the night. Sure. And and so and our, our intention is, you know, the gala is open to anybody, any in you know, law enforcement friendly people or just law enforcement mm-hmm. people. Um and uh, you know, we have community people that are there and are help support us. And the cops is the coolest organization you'll find. The hard part is is there's not a lot of people that know about us until there's a line of duty death in their department. And so we're trying to get this out there, who we are. If you have a line of duty death, please contact us. We can help you. We can we can help walk how, you through. How do they waters. find you? How do they how do they get a hold of uh, Concerns of Police Survivors? Uh, Concerns of Police Survivors dot uh, org is the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they wanted to talk to you, Max, would, yeah, would it be okay? So there's the, yeah, you can. I mean, my phone's always on. 
I'm the immediate past president for the state of Utah. Um, Pat Evans is our current president. Our phones are always on. Um, you can go to the to the Utah Concerns of Police Survivors website or on Facebook, and our phone numbers are there. Our emails are there. I mean, my my phone number is easy to give out. Anybody needs it, it's 801-709-8111. So, and I answer my phone 24-7. And if there's people that need to reach out or want to talk or are interested in, in what we have, we'd love to help them. Max, yeah, thank you so much. Can't tell you how much I appreciate putting on an event like that, being involved in the services that you are involved in with COPS. And that's a big thing too. Like those that don't know what COPS is and what they do and what the mission are. I mean, like in the wellness space, they're famous. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but everybody in the wellness space knows who concerns of police survivors are Absolutely. and the services that they provided and the reputation that they hold as well. I mean, I think when I started this five years ago, that was the first nonprofit that I heard of. Well, arguably you don't want them or need them yes. until you do. Right. And when you do, thing shit's gone bad. Mm-hmm. When you pick up the phone and want to get a hold of Max for line of duty death, Max, thank you so much for coming on and sharing uh, not just your story, but uh, you know your passion for um, what you do now. And and you look great, man. We had <laughs> dinner last night, had a lot of laughs, and I didn't get to go to the gala. I, I apologize. I'll I'll for sure try to make it next year, but. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on and telling us a little bit about Concerns of Police Survivors and what that is. And uh, uh, love you, man. Love you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Max. Okay. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored by Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.